Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 28 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. And Bobby, should we should we have a motion to proceed to uh, the substance of today's episode? But we have no idea what we're moving towards. That, that hasn't stopped anybody. It certainly never stops us. Um, so so I say this because it's it's 2.13 in the afternoon, Central Time, on, what is today, Tuesday, Tuesday. right, July 25th. Um, and the Senate has just done something interesting, which is to proceed to a health care bill that doesn't exist. Got to tell you, I don't, I don't follow it if it's not national security directly related, but I, I hear there's a thing about health care. So, I, you know, I'm, I am genetically predisposed because my dad actually used to run Medicare and Medicaid um, Is that right? to, 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 to care a lot about the U.S. healthcare system. Of course um, I care. I just don't follow the minutiae. What's the enough. minutiae? Lay, lay it on me. We have no idea what the minutiae is. The Senate just moved to, the Senate just voted to proceed without actually having a bill, without having a CBO score, without having any idea of what they're proceeding on. Um, even though it seems quite clear that the goal is to get rid of Obamacare and, you know, to hell with the consequences. Well, I, I'm, I'm definitely not in favor of voting on bills people haven't read. <laughs> there, there, there's <laughs> national there's security law. You go out on yeah. a limb right, right there right. with that one. You should, or, or how about voting on a bill that doesn't exist? Does, forget, forget having not read it, <laughs> right? Well, which is worse? <laughs> That is, there's a question. All right, but but Bobby, no one is listening to this podcast to hear us talk about healthcare. I think that's very true. Um, so so why don't we why don't we tell the the good folks at home what we have on tap for this special 104 degree summer episode? Um, would you say that this is our lightest week of content? I I, I, don't know. I mean, listen, so far, we we promised a quick episode about a month ago that yeah. ended up being about an hour. So yeah, I, I bet this will be quick. I, the plan, <laughs> the plan, such as it is, that's like Battlestar Galactica. The plan, the plan. We should have a whole episode on Battlestar Galactica, but that'll come later. Uh, this episode, one, there's really no national security news. Indeed, we will talk about uh, the extradition of Ali Dimash uh, from Spain and the implications or lack thereof. Uh, for larger questions of counterterrorism policy and long-term disposition of terrorism suspects under the Trump administration. And sort of why he didn't get sent to Guantanamo. I think you, you and I certainly agree on the answer to that question, although we might have some disagreements about the implications. It'll be kind of fun to work that through. Um, and then, of course, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Jeff Sessions story gives us... Uh, the session succession session? That's not easily said. That's uh, positively Susian of you. Uh, the Sessions succession session will take place. We'll talk about what it might mean if the president, what are the pathways if the president wants to remove Jeff Sessions? As it seems he does. I don't know. I think he's kind of just enjoying treating him like a pinata. Um, well, how's, how's the pinata feel about that? Uh, you know, I, I doubt he's going to leave on his own accord. Well, so we'll talk about why I think that's more than just politically relevant, but also why it's legally significant. Um, time permitting, which I think it will, we're going to talk briefly, Bobby, about two important new military commission appeals to the D.C. Circuit, um, wholly apart from the pending cases in the Supreme Court. And then at the end, we're going to talk a bit about the first two episodes of season seven of Game of Thrones. Uh, winter finally arrived, and we can finally talk about Game of Thrones with actual new content. New con- The North is new content? Well, all right, we'll get there. Yeah, uh, yeah. But apparently the North remembers, and so do we. Um, and, and I will say now, we'll say it again later, if you are if you do like Game of Thrones but haven't watched the episodes, when we get to that part of the podcast... We'll warn you. We'll warn you. But you're going to want to stop listening because there will be spoilers. There will be. All right, uh, no spoilers here, I don't think. Let's talk about Ali Dimash. In Ali, this oh, oh, we're going to do Dimash first. So, so who is Ali Dimash, Bobby, and why do I care? All right, so 
most people don't recognize the name, but a lot of people might recognize some of the people that uh, were his co-conspirators. Um, in particular, people in the American audience often will recognize the name uh, Jihad Jane. Uh, this is a situation that traces back to uh, the cartoonist in Europe. Um, I, and forgive me, I'm forgetting if he was Dutch or Danish. Um, but Lars Vilk had drawn a, a cartoon of Muhammad, uh, I think on the body of a dog or something like that. And uh, predictably, this generated all, all sorts of uh, you know, outrage, including uh, plots to kill the artist. Um, on, back in the United States, you have a handful of people. There's, I think, a young man in Maryland and then two women, one of whom is Jihad Jane. Uh, and the other one whose name I think I have here, and I'll try to dig it up in a moment, um, who are communicating online with extremists linked to al-Qaeda, one of whom is Ali Damash, uh, who's an Irish citizen, uh, but born in Algeria. And there's another individual who's, I'm not sure if we know his actual identity. His, his screen name was Eagle Eye. Dimash's screen name was Black Flag. Um, and so they're having these sort of, you know, pro-Al-Qaeda discussions back and forth. Uh, the, the woman known as Jihad Jane uh, kind of leads the charge and says, you know, we're going to come over to Europe. Uh, I'm gonna, I've, I've agreed to take part in a plot. I, I'm going to carry out an attack. She was uh, a blonde-haired person whom... Uh, the, the recruiters involved thought could uh, blend in more easily in, in Scandinavia, for example. And so obviously very uh, attractive to them on that basis. Uh, suffice to say that uh, all three of the U.S. residents involved here eventually are, are uh, arrested. Um, Ali Dimash is in Europe. And again, he's an Irish citizen. Uh, he's arrested. The, the Irish arrest him. He's arrested and prosecuted originally in Ireland for having— uh, In 2011, right? In 2011, for having sent uh, uh, some sort of you know, harassing messages or malicious messages to someone in the United States. And um, eventually, I think, pled guilty on that charge and, and had, a, I think, a three-year, four-year sentence, one year suspended— and, of course, the United States puts in the extradition request for the vastly more serious charges of this, uh, this conspiracy to kill uh, Lars Vilk and, and other related forms of you know, material support type stuff. Um, and then what's fascinating about this is that the, uh, the, district, the equivalent of the district judge in, in Ireland, in a 333-page opinion, I mean, for heaven's sake, 333 pages, uh, declines the extradition request, reasoning that it was likely that Dimash would be convicted and sent to the supermax, uh, probably in you know Colorado, and that that would be a cruel punishment. Under the European Convention of Human Rights, exactly. which Ireland's a party to. Exactly. And so the, the basic idea is that any, any uh, incarceration at the supermax is, is unlawful. And therefore, he can't be extradited. Well, unlawful under European law, right? Under European law, and right. And so, so a European government cannot be complicit in facilitating that detention. That was her ruling. Uh, it, the, it was appealed, but in the meantime, uh, you know, he's out of there. He gets picked up later. He shows up in Spain and is arrested there. And I think quite happily, uh, the Spanish saw their way fit recently to extradite him. And now he's in the United States and he's made his initial appearance in a Philadelphia courtroom where he's going to be prosecuted. Why Philadelphia? Uh, the uh, locus of Cause, the cause plot. That's not because that's not a typical forum for terrorism. No, but at least at least uh, Jihad Jane, I believe, and possibly one of the other uh, co-conspirators in the United States were, I think, in uh, in that area. I, I, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's just so so. It's it's just it's unusual because I think it's it's a, it's a situation where the government probably 
didn't have many options in so insofar as where they brought the prosecution based on the, the connection to the U.S. When you have these uh, overseas captures and you bring someone to the U.S., typically when it's at the government's discretion because there isn't an obvious venue, uh, it's going to be either New York, Washington, or Eastern District. And indeed, Virginia. the statute actually allows the government to control that based upon where the plane lands. It's one of my favorite little quirks exactly. of federal criminal exactly. law. Exactly. Like, why? That why you're going to Dulles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a coincidence. Or actually, I guess you can go to National. That's also Eastern District of Virginia. Yeah, although they don't have as much of a setup for international arrivals. Yeah, it's true. These these may not be regular flights. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, so they're in Philadelphia digress. because that's where the underlying right. American portion. And I should add that all three of those American uh, uh, participants in the conspiracy years back, long since, uh, either I think they all pled, uh, all convicted, certainly. So, Bobby, I think this is not that interesting a case to me, right, other than the fact that here we have, I mean, the New York Times had a headline about this on Friday that was like, in reversal of campaign pledge. Right. Trump, you know, Trump's, Trump sends new detainee to Article Three courts. Now, I think you and I probably agree that the impetus for sending Dimash to the Philadelphia federal court is that Spain would not have extradited him if there was any prospect of him being sent to Guantanamo, to a military commission, to anything other than an ordinary federal civilian criminal prosecution. Absolutely. I think there is zero doubt that unless the United States government gave diplomatic assurances, which I guarantee you they did, mm -hmm. that he will not be put into military detention, won't be tried in a military commission, whether at Guantanamo or any other location, or in any other way proceeded against other than by the ordinary mechanisms of federal civilian criminal prosecution, there's no way they would have extradited him. Indeed, it's based on what I said before. It's actually pretty fortunate that they were able to get him to be extradited at all. So I, I agree with all that. I would just say that it is, I think, still not a non-story. Um, and let, let me take one shot at why I think it's still a big deal and why the New York Times may not have been overreaching with its headline in that presumably the administration had a choice of taking this terrorism suspect who was indicted on terrorism-related charges and putting him in a civilian court or not seeking the extradition in the first place, right? That is to say, like, someone made the choice to say, yes, we will accept these conditions in order to obtain custody over him. I want, that leads me to sort of two different points. One, therefore, getting our hands on this guy was more important than, the than, something about, than, than trying to reinvigorate Guantanamo in his case. Two, and perhaps more importantly, it suggests that this isn't actually easy, right? That there actually are often complications and complexities that whatever you think of Guantanamo and of the military commission system might lend themselves to sending lots of individual cases to a civilian court as opposed to a military commission. So uh, I agree with the second one. Uh, <laughs> I think that I, I'll come back to the first thing in a second. I just don't think it signifies anything at all about what their disposition is towards uh, expanding or reopening Guantanamo. But I absolutely agree that it strongly validates something. I think anyone who works in this area, you know, understands perfectly well and is not in not remotely controversial, which is that a lot of times the way you can acquire custody of some uh, dangerous person who you'd like to see incapacitated uh, requires involvement of your allies. And in, especially when they've got physical custody over the person. In, in any case where a uh, terrorism suspect is captured in Europe, if the United States is eager to be the one controlling that person, you're only going to get them on European terms. Just as if the Europeans want somebody that we've got custody of, they're only going to get them on our, our terms. That's the way it always works in these situations. Um, and so any idea that 
if anyone has an idea that we could always, no matter what, get our hands on somebody and put them where we want to put them, that's just not how it works. But then does it suggest that perhaps at least some critics of President Obama are hypocrites because they did not appreciate and they refused to take seriously folks like you and I saying the same thing when we had prior cases during the Obama administration when he and the Justice Department were heavily criticized for sending detainees picked up overseas into the civilian criminal justice system? I think that if you, I don't know that there was a situation in the Obama years where you had, you certainly had the occasional extraditions. I can think of a couple off the top of my head from Europe, right. where of course those people ended up in civilian court and, and of course were convicted. Um, and, and, where, I, and, I where, and where there were criticisms. Well, I can't recall whether in one of the extradition cases, I'm sure there was, I, I've no doubt we can find somebody. What I don't know is if there was a person of real stature, did, did a member of Congress specifically criticize- Wait, you said a person of real stature. You're right. Okay, let me. (laughs) And or a person elected to our legislature. Um, Oh, we are so cynical. Uh, Especially this week. I don't know that there's a case where you have an extradition where someone said, "Hey, this is this is outrageous. Why didn't Obama send that guy to Guantanamo?" Um, It's so easily rebutted. I'm not sure that you have a case like that. There. That said, there certainly were cases where the choice was made to put someone into civilian court, and then the criticism was, "Well, why didn't you send him to Guantanamo?" But this connects to my response to your first point, which is that where it's an extradition situation and it's a simple binary, you can not have them or you can have them in civilian court. Um, I don't think it's. I don't think it reveals anything about any administration's policy that they go ahead and take the person and put him in the civilian process. So I don't think it reveals anything about their policy. I do think it undermines, to a fairly substantial degree, criticisms that the same administration may have leveled on the campaign trail, right, toward their predecessors. I mean, I, I and know, again, I, I think you'd have to you'd have to catch them out criticizing an extradition from Europe scenario. I just I disagree. I, I think when President Trump was criticizing, when then candidate Trump was criticizing Obama. Um, right, I don't think there was anywhere near this kind of nuance. And so to me, right, this all sort of smacks of the criticisms of President Obama not actually being substantive policy disagreements, but being just there for pure partisan political purposes. Well, I'm certainly not going to speak up in defense of those who, you know, criticize the civilian criminal justice system, which obviously does a fabulous, indeed, uh, almost almost uh, unbelievable job in getting convictions in these cases. I, I'm a I think I'm well associated with defense of the utility so, so this, of that this, So this gives me an excuse to pl- – I'm sorry, Bobby. Go ahead. But, but – but I knew there was a but coming. But there's a but coming. And, and, uh, and, and you know what uh, Ned Stark said about everything from before the but. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, we said no spoilers. That's, oh, no spoilers. I didn't actually say what he said. Anyways, back to, to uh, this uh, world. I, I just don't think it is quite fair to say that this shows this particular episode shows any hypocrisy insofar as I think it's com- perfectly compatible with this result for Trump tomorrow to come out and say, uh, in any situation where we are the ones that did the capturing or we have discretion, they're always going to Guantanamo. Listen, I, which I, would be a, a stupid policy, but... I agree with that statement. My point is just that the kind of knee-jerk oh, he's not sending him to Guantanamo, something must be wrong reaction that we saw during the Obama administration was strangely missing last week. And so, you know, I mean, we're oh, talking, yeah. right? And, and listen, I'm yeah, not fair, right? And, and I mean, we're talking about, folks may not remember this, when Casey Anthony was acquitted, right? The Florida mom in that crazy case. <laughs> Mitch we have Ma- a Casey Anthony sign. Mitch oh McConnell wrote an op-ed. The Senate majority leader wrote an op-ed saying, this is why we need military commissions, right? Because sometimes people are acquitted in the civilian criminal justice system. <laughs> I thought that was if an I knew that, headline. I forgot that. That is really uh, 
That's it was, and, and when I saw that, I was sure it was an onion headline. So, so right, all this right. is to say, listen, I think you and I are on the exact same page about all of the law and policy implications of the Dimash case, modest though they may be. I think I just feel a lot more strongly than you do that there was such blatant knee-jerk hypocrisy about this issue during the Obama years, and that the fact that I haven't I haven't seen a public statement attributed to any member of Congress, to any former DOJ official, to anyone of stature about this episode, one way or the other, which to me just underscores, I mean, Bob, right, Bobby would say, well, that's because they're appreciating the nuance that this is an extradition <laughs> case, and I'd call bullshit. No, no, yeah, that makes me sound like an idiot. <laughs> no, okay, fine. But, but you see, right, we don't disagree. I just, I just read much more into the silence here than you do. Yeah, and I guess maybe maybe I'm just more cynical than you are, and I'm just so not surprised. You're more cynical than I, I am? I am not surprised. That is not how this podcast I'm not surprised goes. that no Republicans are making right. criticisms of the administration in a situation where it's so obvious what the response oh, would be. I'm not surprised either, but I want to, you know, I, I have the Shame Bell app on my phone now. <laughs> what, um, what sort of sound does it make? And um, am I going to hear that a lot as I try to make other points on this so podcast? So I've been waiting to deploy it. I, I should have <laughs> not previewed that it was coming, yeah. but... Um, let's see if I can do this right. Uh, tap to shame, swing to ring. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's not really working Oh, right I wish now. this was TV so people could watch. Uh, <laughs> watch you poking at your... Yeah, well, yeah. all right. I'll get the shame bell working by, yeah, the, end you know this, by the end of this Cause, episode. Because there's nothing to be there's ashamed of here. Shame bell. No. All right. Um, so if that's all we have to say about Dimash, should we pivot to, to everyone's favorite attorney general punching bag, Jeff Sessions? Yeah. Oh, let's talk about our beleaguered attorney general. Is he beleaguered? I guess he is beleaguered. Well, he is beleaguered. That was, it was a fascinating uh, but, choice But who is the source of the beleaguerment? That's the interesting question. All right. And, so, and by the way, I want to make beleaguerment work as a word. Like, I, I want to make that happen. You know, almost every episode we have some crazy new word, limitrophs and such, and now we have beleaguer... Beleaguerment. Uh, um, it, there must be some version. You know, there's be clowning. Mm. Is there a be beleaguered? Is there some sort huh. of, uh, can you, I, this, it could this, be you beleaguer somebody. This was always my question about replevin, right? Replevin is the sort of the. Replevin. What about plevin? Right. Like replevin, I'm taking my property back. So what is plevin? Anyway, all right. <laughs> um, so, so, so this all starts with President Trump's bizarre interview with the New York Times last week, right? Where he went out of his way to be very critical of Attorney General Sessions for not for, for recusing um, from any involvement in the Russian investigation. I believe the president said something to the effect of if he had known Sessions was going to recuse, he would not have picked him for Attorney General. Right. Then on Friday, and this, Bobby, to me is the most interesting little sort of quirk here, the Washington Post reports that there are intelligence intercepts um, recording conversations between Ambassador Kislyak and his superiors in Moscow memorializing conversations with then-Senator Sessions in 2016 that were, in fact, about the campaign, right? And if our listeners recall, when Sessions was being, what went through his confirmation process, he volunteered in a very strange colloquy with Senator Franken that he had no contacts with Russians, comes out, you know, later comes out that, in fact, he did. He modified his answer in subsequent written amendments to say his contacts were not campaign-related, Right. So right. the Washington Post story, if true, and let me say, by if true, I mean not just if Kislyak reported that, but if what Kislyak was reporting was an accurate memorialization of right. the conversation. He may have said it and not be telling the truth. But if we assume for the moment it's true, right, then Sessions perjured himself, right? Because then Sessions, both under oath in his hearing and in follow up questions that were signed, right, denied the contacts that were campaign related yeah. when yeah. in fact there were. Um, the really interesting question is who leaked that? 
right? Because there wasn't quite the same reaction from the White House to that story as being the product of an unlawful leak as there has been to other stories. Right. And, I, and let me just say, like, the, the idea of media reports referring to what was said in signals intercepts is, you know, it's, it's really – this probably – for people who don't kind of follow this area, that may seem like, well, so what? There's leaks all the time about all sorts of secret stuff. Yeah, true. And it's not like this is the first time the the language uh, recorded in Signals Intercepts has appeared in the papers. But this is a really top of the line type of violation. Shame. Oh, you, <laughs> you got the shame. shame. I'm kind of picturing some sort of medieval shame. herald type person waving that. That is the bell that rings, I think, within the IC when you talk about the very idea of, of calling up a reporter and conveying the content of SIGINT intercepts. By the way, the reason why it wasn't working before was because I had my, my notifications off because we were recording As on the podcast. As you should, because, man, this is a serious uh, you know, media production. But so but so, so it strikes me – listen, right, okay, you so and I to agree on point, this. No, to, to your point, though, okay, so it's, it's, a re, it's within the realm of intelligence community wanting to keep the secret secret – the content of signals interception has always been treated as one of the top shelf types of secrets. You right. just Crown don't, jewels. You don't leak that stuff. Um, and, and this did. Now, what's interesting here, as you, as you were beginning to hint, is the question of, well, wait, d- is this another example of the deep state going after the Trump administration? And if it is, the president was awfully quiet. He was very quiet about it, which runs with the grain of what speculation that suddenly you know, took everyone by storm, Steve? Um, the speculation that the president's trying to get rid of the attorney general. And that he is outing him to undermine him rather than uh, frontally assaulting him. Right. So, and indeed, I mean, there, the, there was... Let me just say, um, please. get rid of him or perhaps just leverage him to take, to, you know, maybe re-engage on the investigation. So, so, or so, so I want to get to that, right? I want to get to what the end game is here. But first right. I want to start with, I mean, I think it's really important not to undersell this, not, not to skip over this point, right? That here we had what, frankly, I think is one of the worst national security leaks of this administration to date, Right. And a president who has been only too happy to try to make the focus of the conversation beyond the leaks, not the substance of what they're leaking, who apparently has nothing to say about this particular leak. Um, yeah. That says everything to me. It is. And let me let me add to underscore the seriousness of it, because I think a lot of people's reaction was, oh, like it's news to the Russians that they're monitored. Well, of course, it's not news that we're trying to monitor them. And it's not news that sometimes we succeed. The question is, is it news that whatever the platform was for that particular call, and they'll be able to know it oh, was yeah. this particular oh, phone, know, yeah. um, that that, in fact, is right. monitored, or I should say, was monitored. Right. So it right. certainly probably isn't at this point. Right. So Helen Klein, Marillo, and I have a post on Lawfare on Monday about how this story factors into the session's perjury conversation, um, which is really interesting because in one fell swoop, we go from is Sessions guilty of a felony to is he the last best hope for independence <laughs> exactly. in our government? Yeah, um, she going to show you everybody gets a second act. Well, okay. So or a third, fourth. So, 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 so let's back up. So what, what I take away from the setup here before we get to the legal implications Mm-hmm. is that the president is really, really, really pissed about Russia oh, yeah. and, and doesn't care at all about everything else Sessions is doing, which by all accounts is, is deeply in line with Absolutely. the president's domestic no, agenda. And, and, and all this is exactly what anybody who's a close observer of this stuff would expect. It's He's, all Russia. If you, if you are part of the problem that he perceives of people hounding him about Russia right. and his family— um, you, he's going to come after you. Okay, so then the question is, what can he accomplish, right? So it seems to me that there's no scenario in which Sessions would unrecuse on Russia, right? Because then he just, he would fold. Right, I mean, that what's would be, the 
point. Yeah. Right. So so the, it seems like the only thing you can accomplish right is forcing Sessions out. Um, because you're not going to get them unrecused. And so long as Sessions is the recused attorney general, the Senate-confirmed deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, who President Trump wrongly geographically criticized last week as well, is in charge, right, and is supervising the special counsel investigation. That apparently is not cool with the president in the White right. House. Right, so that didn't solve his problem either. Right, so the only way to solve so the problem then? is to get someone in the office of the attorney general who is willing to do the president's bidding vis-a-vis the special counsel. So you're saying uh, this is analogous to it's not enough to repeal. You have to repeal and replace. Why, what a good analogy, Bobby. <laughs> yes, right, right. that it's not enough to get rid of or marginalize the attorney general. You have to put right. someone in his stead. So, so this gets to all of the sort of complexities of, so what, how, does, how does the president get Sessions Before out? Before we do that, just let me say it's, it is possible with this particular president that you and I think, well, he must have this end game, right? Probably. I think I agree. It's also possible that he's just pounding Jeff Sessions as punishment for for making what he views as a, uh, a betrayal type of mistake. No, no, right. Whether he's gotten to the end of this conversation or whether he's still at the beginning, right. I think there's no question why this is happening, right? This is all about Russia. Whether that, whether that means the president has some deep plan or whether this is just right. lashing out at the he attorney may be, general. He may be just punishing Sessions and, what, and right. sending a warning to everyone else in, in that sort of uh, you know mob boss sort of style that seems to typify some of what's Lu- going Luca, on here. Lu- Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. That's right. You got, here's, he's sending people wrapped fish. Um, uh, okay, but but anyways, whether he's there already, although or Amy is, also does that for Josh on the West Wing, and that's a di- different kind of message. Mm, okay, anyway, right, sorry, that, but I digress. <laughs> all right. So so let's get to the end game. And whether he's thinking about it or not, it's obviously the the we leaks are. have suggested that now there's there's talk about replacing him. So sooner or later, somebody's gotten into that conversation. What are the options if they if they don't get anything out of this to improve their situation, unless they replace him with someone more pliable? Right. So, so I, I wrote a post for Just Security on Monday about the three session succession scenarios. Um, that's, a, that's a mouthful. Yeah, but it was a fun title. Fox and Socks. All right. So, so let me briefly walk through the three scenarios, and I think our listeners will understand how the differ, how they differ in their implications. Um, the most obvious and straightforward scenario is the one provided for by the DOJ succession statute, twenty eight mm-hmm. USC section five zero eight. And by President Trump's own executive order on DOJ succession, Mm -hmm. which is in the case of a vacancy in the office of the attorney general, the acting attorney general is the deputy attorney general. Right. Rod Rosenstein. Okay. So textbook straight up, you know, vacancy. Doesn't help him, though. Deputy's in charge. Well, so. Unless you get rid of. The deputy, attorney, the deputy general attorney general, and then you have the associate attorney general, Rachel Brand, and then that's would, not going to solve their problem either. And then you have Dana Bente, who is the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. Right? Not, not obvious to me that would solve their problem either. Right, In fact, so, I would say probably not. So it looks like the straight line DOJ succession route. If the whole goal here is to exert more influence over Special Counsel Mueller and the Russia investigation, it looks like the the first most obvious scenario just follow the DOJ succession playbook. Not really going to get you there. Let me press on that. What if it is there? Does the the Rod Rosenstein and uh, Rachel Brand parts that obviously is not going to help him. But he can, by executive order, change who the first up U.S. attorney in that line of succession could be. Is does that need to be a Senate confirmed U.S. attorney? And if so, is there anyone that's likely to be a loyalist to him on this <laughs> issue, such that he could issue an executive order, make that person the new number four, right. and then fire the top three? So I'm going to I'm going to screw this up. But Brian, uh, I, I'm going to mess up his last name. I think it's Givadin, um, pointed this out to me offline that. Um, 
The U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Texas, okay. John Parker, I think is his okay. name, um, is confirmed right now, but that he was appointed through a weird procedure. It was a federal judge who appointed him and not the president. So there's actually a really weird appointments clause question. Is there some sort of, I don't understand there's anything a statute, about that like There's a statute that apparently allows for the appointment of a U.S. attorney by a judge in certain cases. Anyway, I'm huh. going to – but the short version, Bobby, is I don't think there will be an obvious – um, person in the Senate-confirmed line of DOJ succession to carry the water if President Trump is going to fight. I don't think there's a Bork right here, um, if we go back to our Saturday Night yeah, Massacre. Wow. But also, there's an, and this is the most important right. point, there doesn't need to be. Ah, so tell me about these other pathways. Okay, so if we assume that he's not going to, that the president's not going to find the kind of successor he wants in the ordinary DOJ succession landscape, then we come, my friends, to the Federal Vacancies Reform Act of 1998, um, which I won't call the VRA because the VRA is the Voting Rights Act. Mm, um, yeah, good point. And the, the Vacancies Reform Act is bizarre. So do you do you know what were the circumstances that led to its enactment? I you know we should figure this out, and I should have done that before this episode. Yeah, but you that know, would require prep. That would require prep. Um, I think there was a concern, right, that the president was being hamstrung um, in at least some respects with regard to filling vacancies in various cabinet departments because not everyone had the same kind of structured succession plan that DOJ has. Right, and you didn't necessarily want to have a civil service deputy be able to frustrate the president's executive exactly. authority. This is sort of a unitary executive enhancing sure. uh, measure. So to that end, the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, which I believe you can find at 5 U.S.C. 5534, if my math is right. I hope I have that right. Or 3354. Ah, one of those. We'll tweet it. Um, basically says that in the case of a vacancy, and Bobby, here's where things get interesting. Because the office holder dies, resigns, or is otherwise unable to discharge the duties of his office. There's some language for interpretation. Well, yes, we'll come back to that. Um, the president can actually uh, have exercise two other options. So the first option is to pick anybody who holds a, quote, PAS position. PAS stands for presidentially appointed Senate confirmed. Mm -hmm. Bobby, anywhere in the government. Right. Right. Any Senate confirmed officer anywhere in the government can serve right. on an interim basis as the acting holder of that office for up to 210 days, according to the Vacancies Reform Act, or potentially longer, depending upon when the president nominates a permanent successor. That's pretty interesting. So that could be somebody having no ties whatsoever to DOJ. I mean, but for a couple of other statutes, it could be a military officer. They're Senate confirmed. Well, he loves right? that. Um, it could be, you know, uh, Secretary Carson, right? It could be a deputy in the, you know, Department of Agriculture. I mean, there are lots of ways he could go here. Or, and this is the important or, the statute also allows for the appointment on an acting basis of someone who is already in the relevant department, has been there for at least 90 days, and holds a salary pay scale level of GS-15 or higher. Right, so senior. So senior. Um, and so if you think about DOJ, Bobby, folks who were on the beachhead team, right, for President Trump's DOJ transition, who have been there since January, someone like the acting solicitor general, Jeff Wall, right, folks who are acting yep. division leaders at mm -hmm. DOJ, they're all GS-15s or higher. Right. Right. So there are a handful of folks who are not um, subject to Senate confirmation at DOJ, who could theoretically be chosen by the president as the successor, as the acting successor for at least seven months, right, under the Vacancies Reform Act. Okay, so that's a real possibility. What's if, the catch? So there are two catches. The first catch is a pretty easy one. 
there is a fight about whether the Vacancies Reform Act is um, over, overrides, right, the DOJ succession statute on the theory that the specific statute should govern the general. If there's a special statute for DOJ, the argument goes, why should this general federal government-wide statute control? Right. Now, OLC has written opinions on this and has concluded that the Vacancies Reform Act does indeed supersede the DOJ Succession Act because it's not clear that it's general compared to the specific DOJ statute and because it's later in time, right? That is to say, the Vacancies Reform Act dates to 1998. The DOJ Succession Statute, yeah. I think, dates to the 1960s. Well, and I, I'll tell you, I've been while you're talking, I've been kind of browsing through the Senate report. So Fred Thompson yep. introduced this bill. Yep. And there's a lot of stuff. In you, mean, the you mean you mean the, the, the well? So which Fred Thompson character do we like? The district the district attorney on Law and Order, the admiral on the Hunt for Red October, oh, I the Tower it. controller in Die Hard Two. I think Law and Order. Certainly right. not the candidate one. His heart wasn't into that role. Yeah, seriously. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's got a bunch of stuff about how they were thinking specifically about the Justice Department when right. they were developing. Oh no, the so, so so I think on this point OLC is right. Yeah. The harder one, and this is also where there's some question about then Senator Thompson's floor statements, is why the statute doesn't refer to situations where the office holder has been fired. Right. Now that's really interesting. Right. So it says. So what does Thompson's floor statement reveal about that? So Thompson said on the floor of the Senate that he understood the term or is otherwise unable to exercise the duties of the office to encompass fired. Right. Well, because you certainly can't exercise the duty of your office. In That's that right. But there are other federal statutes that actually refer to dies, resigns, is terminated, or is otherwise able to, right? right? So and the so, exclusion of that term, and this gets down to basic statutory interpretation preferences. Are you are you of the flavor that cares what the sponsor said? Right. Or, or do you only care about what was enacted? And so, and so I don't want to say that there's a clear answer to this. I just want to flag that this is a matter of dispute and why... For example, the president and the White House, insofar as they're paying attention to this, might care quite a lot about whether uh, Jeff Sessions resigns, in which case there's no question the Vacancies Reform Act is available, or is fired, in which case there's at least an argument that it's not. Now, here's to tie this back to our last episode where we went in, or two episodes back, we went in depth on political question doctrine. Um, This interpretive question, is this... Is there any way in which this gets in front of a judge for a judicial determination or if a fight emerges? Let's yeah. say the administration goes to this yeah. route, they fire him, and then act under the Vacancies Act and say, all right, well, our interpretation is that termination you know, triggers this, uh, and someone disagrees, who could litigate it? Well, so imagine all the people who are subject to coercive actions by the Attorney General of the United States. Every immigrant in a removal proceeding, every federal criminal, right, presumably could object that any 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 situation where you have a relevant document signed by the a- acting yeah. attorney general, there's your, there's your injury in fact and such. And and the argument is that the acting attorney general was not lawfully appointed and therefore did not have the authority to do the thing. Bobby, a FISA warrant, right? right? Could you object to a FISA warrant, which by the way has to be signed by, by the attorney uh, or the, the well, person so, with the power of the attorney which general, which FISA defines to include the acting attorney general, right? Right. So, so is I there actually, any way for a court to dodge it then, or could a large number of people put this issue before it? I, I think this would get litigated. Actually, I, I think there's much more of a straight shot to litigating this question than the question of whether Bob Mueller is fired for cause, whether whether there actually is cause, right, in right. a case where the special counsel is fired purportedly right. for cause. Then you have a much harder showing of who's, who's the right plaintiff. So that suggests that, indeed, there is a great advantage to the White House if Sessions will resign. Because it moots this question, right? right? And, and as long as OLC is correct that the Vacancies Reform Act Trump's 
<laughs> the the DOJ succession statute, which I think it is, right? Then the president would have, at least on an interim basis, a wide pool of people from which to choose an acting attorney general who would not have the authority of the attorney general in all respects, but who would, I think, in all the ones that we care about. Interesting. Okay, but so a cloud does hang over this pathway as well. Well, I think this is why we're. This is what the the cloud is firing sessions, right? I think this yeah. is why but they have to do it that way. Well, so, so I think this, I mean, listen, if there's a lawyer who really knows what they're doing, who's pushing this, and it's not just the president off on one of right, his right. frolics, I think this is why they would much rather have Sessions resign, not just for the political optics, but because it moots any question about the Vacancies Reform Act. So if we if we read tomorrow that not only is the, the president tweeting uh, things that make the, the attorney general feel bad, but meanwhile, there's also some sort of formal uh, offer of a, a Caribbean ambassadorship, <laughs> the carrot and the sticker in play, and now we know why. That's right. All right. Um, and then, but it's worth stressing that either of the first two scenarios we've laid out still only get you an acting attorney general. Right. That's not a long-term solution. But then again, this isn't about long-term policy because he's already getting the policy he wants. What he's not getting that he wants is an end to the Russia investigation. Right. So imagine that uh, imagine that the Vacancies Reform Act route is available to mm-hmm. him. Imagine that he finds a, quote, PAS, unquote, mm-hmm. person or a current Justice Department GS-15, mm-hmm. right, who's willing to go in who is not bound by ethical and DOJ rules to recuse because they didn't have prior contacts with Russia. Um, and who takes it upon themselves to fire Bob Mueller. Right. Because that's what, I mean, right. that's, that's what we're talking the end about. Game, right? That's yeah. the end game. Yeah. Well, at that point, then we've got drama, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, we do. Firing Bob Mueller doesn't end the investigation, right? The regulation does not allow the attorney general or the acting attorney general to terminate the investigation. Only the special counsel can. But firing Bob Mueller allows for the appointment of a new special counsel. Who, who could be anybody. Who could be anybody and who could themselves terminate the investigation. And certainly would. Any, anyone uh, right. who's going to at fire that point. Mueller. Oh, at that point, yeah, we're, we're yeah. far yeah. enough down into no, the into that, the, into the into That's weeds all done. Yeah. And then the only thing that would the slow hole. it down would be if there could be litigation on the fired for good cause. Which, again, goes back to the resigned versus fired. Now, to that, the, the ground has been laid a little bit with this this sort of theme that the president and others are putting out there. Kellyanne Conway is putting out mm-hmm. there. This this attempt to cast aspersions and all these, um, I think, what most reasonable observers would say, the, the impressive set of lawyers and mm-hmm. public servants that have joined Don't, this team. Uh, because they, because – how dare they? They've donated money to Democrats. Some of them. You know, you, you know who else has donated money to Democrats? President uh, Donald Trump. Trump. Yeah. Uh, Ivanka Trump, Anthony Scaramucci. Indeed, they've all donated more money to Democrats than any of the lawyers on Bob Mueller's team. <laughs> There's got to be some great kind of counter tweet in there. I look forward to you to produce it. No, no, someone else did it already. All right, but but all this is just to say, right, if the end game is getting rid of the investigation, right, I think you and I would probably agree. We still have to get to sort of a permanent attorney general. But, right, you and I would agree that legally— that's available. Yeah, right? and, and I would also add that even if at the end of the day, um, somewhere along the way, the, the various contingencies you just walked through end up uh, not panning out for the Trump administration, at a minimum, they would succeed in derailing any actual functioning of the investigation and then Congress every, right, for, and, for a long time. And then everything, I think, Bobby, would pivot to Congress, right? And, and, and there would be two different questions there. One, does, do, does some amount of these machinations um, constitute the crossing of a red line? That pushes Congress to ramp up right. its and, own investigations. And, you know, I got to tell you, I, I seriously doubt that those who have stuck with them this far by those sorts of machinations, I don't think that's going to be the thing that changes it for them. I don't know. Especially so, if the polling doesn't change because a majority of likely Republican voters still strongly endorse the president. Yeah, except there are two different things, right? Um, the two things are Jeff Sessions and Bob Mueller are not Sally Yates and Jim Comey. Right. Sessions is one of their own. 51 Republican senators and Joe Manchin all voted to confirm him. Yeah. Right. Bob Mueller. I mean, there have been a ton of statements from 
you know, not exactly the most left-leaning Republicans in Congress of support for Bob Mueller. You know, the, the Sessions angle might get you a, f- a few more people than you otherwise would get, maybe a lot more in the Senate. I don't think it'll help you in the House. Yeah, but the Senate's where the action is. I mean, right? So, yeah. you know, I mean, we also learned, right, last week, buried in all the other headlines, Richard Burr came out and said that whole unmasking thing was all of Devin Nunes's making, right? Like, there was right. there there actually was no there there, which you and I are shocked. Shocked. Shocked, shocked and appalled. There, there's gambling going well, on I was, here. I was glad to see Burr, you know, coming out on this and, and showing independence, and, but, and he has. But so the other possibility then is, could you get veto-proof supermajorities to reenact the independent council statute? And I think not. I don't think not we, today. I don't think. I just don't think that all this. It's going to be so muddy, and and when yeah. it when it starts unfolding, if it does go this way, there's going to be such a massive effort to delegitimize Mueller and his team. And Sessions, but especially Mueller's team. I think I think it depends on what happens. And I think it depends on what the rest of DOJ does, right? So, for example, if the president really does short-circuit the DOJ succession process, do Rosenstein and Brand resign in protest, right? right. I mean, I, I the, people are going to be looking for signaling yeah, from other yeah. folks in this in this conversation. Well, I think people have been saying for a while now that they're they're waiting. And some people thought maybe Paul Ryan was going to be like yeah. this early on. No, it's not going to happen. that's just because they don't know Paul that, Ryan. At what point will a will a major Republican figure now Ben Sass, who I point out many times, has been major re- Republican figure. Ma- he absolutely is a major uh, Republican oh, no, no, figure. I was, but I was, yeah, I was I was saying you said major Republican figure. Oh, you're saluting major Republican figure. No, no, I was saying I'm not sure Ben Sass is a major Republican. I'm figure. saying he is. And okay. I'm telling you that that guy could well be the president one day. I think that he's a maverick on these issues, though, and doesn't represent. Can we not use the word maverick today? Oh, uh, in, in honor of uh, Senator McCain. Yes, the the maverick. Uh, I, who who came all the way back to Washington to take healthcare away from millions of Americans? Well, this is not a healthcare podcast. Uh, I know. All right, <laughs> I, I won't try to I won't try to debate healthcare. With Listen, you. I, I mean, you and I probably look, we agree on the on the basics, which is that we're not there yet, right? Right. We I don't I don't know if there's a moment at which I don't know if there's a red line, and if so, what that red line is. But surely some of what we've been you know uh, hypothesizing here could at least bring some prominent Republicans closer to that point. It, it'll it'll be another notch. And, and it's like we're, you know, we're laying these straws across the camel's back. Right. And the question is, which one's the straw? All right. Now, but this isn't, we haven't exhausted the possibility. I was going to say, so, there's, so, so we have to get to the last and nuclear d- option. And does it in some way have a different political valence? All right. So, so all we've been talking about so far is replacing Sessions on a temporary acting basis. Of course, there's the question of who would be the next permanent confirmed constitutionally authorized attorney general. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about the possibility that President Trump would recess appoint a successor. Um, so recess appointments, just for the folks who aren't necessarily con law professors, um, president has the authority to fill vacancies during recesses of the Senate. The Supreme Court in 2014 in the Noel Cannon case held that the vacancy does not have to arise during the recess, that a recess is any time the Senate is out of business for 10 or more days. And say, Steve, when when will that come up again? Well, so it might come up at all. So this is the question right now. So um, the Senate is scheduled to go on colloquial term recess in August. It's not clear that it's going to be a constitutional recess because the Senate has basically had the standing arrangement for the last couple of years that they actually don't go on recess, that right. they have these so-called pro forma sessions where like every third day, one random senator walks into the Senate. <laughs> it's like the most junior member of the Senate or whoever's like, really on the hey, McConnell's list. I'm here. The Senate's We're in, in business. Session. Sure, right. Right, right. And then and then they go away and don't conduct any right. business. So, and this is done 
I think, right, entirely in order to, bl- to block recess appointments. So th- I, there's, like, one other procedural reason why this happens. Yeah. I think it also has something to do with, like, preventing the House from doing something shady. But, but right. mostly it's about well, Whatever it is, it's protecting their turf. And that turns out to really matter for recess right. appointments and in so, this cycle. And so the default right now, I believe, is that there are still supposed to be pro forma sessions even during the upcoming right. recess. And so in theory, the leadership could change that. Well, so that's boy, the question. I would imagine they don't want that problem. So, so this is the question, right? Is there going to be any pressure from the White House on the Republican leadership in the Senate? Now, um, Minority Leader Schumer apparently said today on the floor of the Senate, I've only seen the second hand, but he apparently said something like, um, you know, it would have to be a filibuster-proof majority to, to change the rules to allow for a proper recess. Of course, that leads me to think that the Republicans could nuke the filibuster. They could, but, but why, why would McConnell want to do that? Well— you know that I, I just, especially as you said a moment ago, in order to stick it to their former colleague Jeff Sessions. But okay, so I don't think he would. But let's just play this out. If he did, right? So in a world in which somehow the White House is able to convince the Senate Republicans to actually go on a real recess, a constant, I'm sorry, a constitutionally mean, mean, meaningful, a, meaningful yes. recess in August, that opens the door to recess appointments. By the way, not just of the Attorney General, but of like the 115 open federal judgeships. Right. I mean, across the board. Um, and the recess appointment would last until the expiration of the, quote, next session of the Senate, unquote. And that's not soon. No, that would be January 3rd, 2019. So <laughs> a recess-appointed attorney general, if you could get it, would be there for about a year and a half. Yep, that in, which is about double the benefit you get from the vacancies approach. Um, so I think that they're not going to be able to get the Senate to, to I think that's open probably the door right. for them. And so then what we're looking at is Sessions either stays and says, you know, to hell with you. I'm the Attorney General of the United States. If you, you know, if you want to fire me, fire me. Otherwise, I'm going to do my job. That's right. Right. Or he leaves, and then we're back into the sort of you know vagaries of the Vacancies Reform Act of 1998. I guess so. Prognostications: What's most likely to happen? I'm thinking they continue to abuse everyone involved, but don't actually pull the trigger on these firings. I think that's right. I, I, barring until so, so where we are today, unless things get more sensitive. Well, so that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Where we are today, but listen, I mean, you know, Paul Manafort was subpoenaed today, right, by I think the Senate Judiciary Committee. I mean, you know, things are happening. Yep. And and so I think that where we are today, there probably is not quite enough to really push the White House to take the plunge. Right. Um, it is not hard to imagine, though, that they're building the case for when it comes and that, indeed, the perjury stuff, which ironically is perjury about Russia, um, <laughs> is, is, was a trial balloon. But, you see. know, it's, it's a great uh, bit of judo. And we've seen them do this before with Jim Comey, the, mm-hmm. the claim that, well, we have to get rid of him because look how he mishandled and mistreated poor Hillary. Um, same deal. Of Jeff Sessions lying about the Russians. Got to get rid of that guy. It's a judo move to turn the enemy's arguments against Except them. it's so transparent. Anyway. Right, but, 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 you know, so yeah. what? Right. Well, because, right, not everyone listens to this okay, podcast. Okay, so I think we're on the same page. And I think the best prediction is uh, unless and until the inside scoop is that Mueller's investigation is getting really close to the bone to the family or to Trump himself. And by the way, let me just take this moment to point out, in his interview with the New York Times, right, President Trump said, if the special counsel starts looking at my finances, right. that would be a red line. Right. And I will add, it did By the way, there's no it, question they're already looking at their finances. Oh, and it, it doesn't even have to be a thing. A lot of people got excited thinking, oh, Mueller's going to see the, the income tax returns and all the rest. It... I don't think it's even necessarily the case that there's going to be some smoking gun there. It's just going to be revealed that there were claims about his wealth that weren't true, or it's all more complicated, or it's or, shady, or he was, or some of his businesses were propped up by investments by Russian tycoons. And, and it may, and it may not be, you know, the the collusion word, but it's just it's different than what was being said, That's or right. it's embarrassing. And clearly, this is someone 
who has a particular focus on this issue. And so if he thinks it's really going to come out, yeah, yeah. then I see them going the vacancy, vacancies I, 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 act I, I, and, and firing Sessions and forcing the question. Because exactly. I think it's quite clear. If Jeff Sessions was going to resign, he would have already. Yeah, no, no. I, I think he'll, he'll hopefully stay. Which is ironic because, I mean, I, I don't think it will surprise anyone who listens to this podcast to know – to hear that I am not exactly Jeff Sessions' biggest fan. No, and so we'll add Sessions now to the list that already included Rosenstein as people that you don't really want to be there to, you don't want to be there to begin with, but you're glad they're there now. Oh, but I have to say, I mean, like, Rosenstein, I mean, if I, people can't see my hands right now. Like, Rosenstein <laughs> is like, you know, Tom Seaver, right, <laughs> compared to Jeff Sessions, like. Who are you going to tag with? Daniel Murphy, oh. right? I mean, like, you know, <laughs> insofar as, like, how, you know, I, I, that metaphor didn't really work. But yeah, like, I was going to say, I'm having trouble processing. I was going like, to say, like, Jose Lima or something. Like, I actually don't have – I think Rod Rosenstein and I disagree on a number of policy issues, right? But I actually yeah. think yeah. our disagreements are principled and respectful and, and deep. Right. I actually cannot stand – where the current attorney general of the United States is on most yeah. of the domestic policy issues that I care about. But then again, that doesn't cause a problem for you here because right. any replacement would be, be more or less the same on those. Oh, uh, well, but wouldn't probably. be recused from the Russia investigation. So, you know, it's funny. I'm not, this is an interesting question for the president. I mean, you know, is the replace, is he going to care that Sessions' successor is as committed to some of the crazy stuff Sessions has already been doing on policing, on drugs, on, you know, voting, on all that stuff versus just caring someone that, about someone who's going to interfere with Bob Mueller. I think the first and in, in necessary condition is this person's got to be committed to shutting down that investigation. Right. And then we see um, what happens. But I also think that if there's going to be plenty of choices, once he's free to appoint whomever he wants to do it through right. the vacancies route, right. maybe, um, he's going to have plenty of choices who will say, yeah, I'll, I'll take that job on that condition. Now, let's look at your other uh, policies. Yeah, we'll see what happens. All right. So um, as I predicted, our short episode has not actually been that short. Oh, we got to wrap it up quick. Um, so why don't we save the two DC Circuit new yep. Gitmo cases for next week? Because one of them is going to be argued next yep, week good. on next Wednesday. All right. Gives us um, something to talk about. And so if you are a Game of Thrones fan who has not seen episodes one and two, this is the moment where we say thanks Goodbye. for listening. Thank you. And you should probably Adios. stop right now. Okay. Okay. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. So. The North remembers. The North remembers. Winter's here. The North remembers. So we were talking before the show. You know, our, 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 our 30 seconds of prep today basically consisted of saying we've both been a bit underwhelmed by episodes one and two. Yeah. I, I had the observation that it feels very, uh, I say, plot-driven in a negative way. That it there are just certain necessities to move the story forward. And it just feels like right. we're. This thing has to happen. Yeah. Then now let's have that thing happen. And it didn't feel organic and natural. And it, and it interferes with the suspension of disbelief that makes it all so fun. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, think about how, like, so so the scene in episode two, right, where Arya is back at the at the pub yeah. with hot pie. Yeah. Like, and oh, then, look, who's, look who's by my man. And, no, I mean, that's fine. I mean, that was like Arya's way of learning stuff. Like, contrast that with Arya and Nymeria, which I thought was a really powerful scene about, like, you know, Arya and Nymeria, do they recognize each other? You know, like, how is Arya's character? Like, that that scene, to me, is the Game of Thrones I love. The sort of pub scene was, oh, a lot of, we, we have to Ex- tie all these strings it together. Was, as I like to say it, it, with my wife, it's basal exposition on the scene. It really is. It's Sir Basil. Um, and meanwhile, apparently the producers are committed to, to having Sam be part of the most disgusting montages each week. <laughs> 
Yeah, that is. Uh, right. I actually thought the so I thought the filmmaking was Sam. Oh, yeah, the, 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 the dissolve from the pus to the pie. Yeah, it, that was that was brilliantly gross. And the prior sequence oh, with the, with chamber, the pots. chamber pots and the lunches, Ugh. it was so horrific, but hilariously so. And Sam's great comic relief. I continue to think that Sam is 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 a, a key character for oh, George Martin. Oh, I mean, let's look at I mean, look at Dragonstone, right? I mean, so Sam's you know Sam's stunning revelation that Dragonstone is shockingly built yeah. on a mountain of by the way, dragon glass. I, I wish my archive research was that easy all right let's see you got access to the archive let's grab a book oh, let's, let's grab a random book off the shelf hey look there's actually even a drawing to tell me the thing i needed to know that is darn convenient and let me send to ravens who apparently the, the ravens apparently since season six have learned how to travel at warp speed no no the whole thing unfolded so fast and, and to add to that line of criticism uh the clash of the Greyjoys. i mean come on <laughs> that it felt so contrived yeah, although I mean, I'm not shedding a tear for the Sand Snakes. No, well, hey, the, the outcome is a, is a different question. But just the idea that in such a terribly important situation that that the uh, the the I guess we'll call it the Targaryen fleet of the Greyjoys, um, you know, caught by surprise uh, right, caught to that degree. Right. Where was their radar technology? Well, the, the, the level of intelligence required for Euron to be able to say, <laughs> oh, you need me to do more? Okay, I'll go do more. I know exactly what we're going to go do. And I know exactly where I'm going to find, right, the, the Yara Theon fleet. Right. In, in a world in which they've got no, they haven't, it would have helped a lot if they'd had at least some kind of little plot device. That's like right. A raven. A raven. A MacGuffin. Or having having somebody, you know, do, do, you, know, do you know this term MacGuffin? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Like, yeah. A, they, a they, needed, they needed a MacGuffin to explain exactly how Euron found that fleet. exactly. At yeah. least, at least have some you know some spy so, report. So, to so him. we talked. We talked a couple weeks ago about how you know it's shaping up how where season seven is going to be the sort of yeah. the humans sorting things out, and then season eight is going to be the White Walkers. Um, it sure feels like that's where this is going. We haven't seen hardly anything of Bran. We've seen hardly. We see almost nothing of the White Walkers. And I have to say, like that's fine. But man, it certainly feels right now. It's like, all right, a lot. We have to get all these things. We have to move these pieces into position. Yeah. We have to have all these things happen so that we can have the climactic confrontation that everyone knows is coming. So I partially agree. They're clearly consolidating the plot lines by allocating everyone into a couple of set locations. They're going to have a certain number of people all at, uh, at King's Landing, and pretty soon, you know, Euron's going to be back there with with uh, you know his Dornish prisoners, and they'll all they'll all be there. Meanwhile, everyone else is consolidating at uh, Winterfell. Um, that said, I disagree that they're going to keep the White Walkers sideline. I think they're gearing up towards a major yeah. battle at Eastwatch. Uh, yeah, Eastwatch by the sea. By the sea, and uh, you know it's interesting where the wildlings get overrun. Of, the, the Brotherhood without banners and and uh, and the Tormund. Hound, they're all they're all heading up there. And Tormund. Yeah, and Tormund as well. And yeah. I hope I hope he makes it out of it. I'm afraid he might be the next beloved character to not make it. I was I was worried for a minute on on Sunday that Arya was going to bite it. Well, I thought when they presented the wolf and they. Okay, so let's talk about that whole sequence. You said you liked it. I didn't like what they were doing with Arya there. Um, she's been through so much. It's all about denial of her roots and toughening and hardening. Yeah. And she's begun her revenge train. And then, man, like that. And I'm not saying I would have in real life with those circumstances acted differently. But suddenly she's like, no, no, no. Oh, never mind. All right, forget King's Landing, I'm going to Winterfell. And 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 she had this, there was a moment where I thought there was a setup because she was smiling. She's, you know, she's just eating this great meal with her old friend and she's on the road to go get back to her family. And then the wolf appears and the wolf doesn't seem to recognize her. And I thought, damn, I think they're going to have that wolf bite her head off or something right no, here. No, no, no. Oh, no. See, I, I read the scene different. I read the scene with Nymeria differently. See, I think the wolf recognized her. No, I know, I know. But I thought when it, at first, when it wasn't clear no, no, what right. was going to happen, right. I thought they were going to, I thought it was sort of like in, uh, 
um, hot right. shots when, right. The, right. when right. The, the pilot gets in there and he's he's like everything's turning you know going great for me and the kids and right. I've got the solution yeah, to the, yeah, the yeah, JFK. Conspiracy. No, I hear you, but but I, I guess so. Here's the thing: Arya says that isn't her, right? Yeah, and I think that is the most profound. So I think that's the most profound line of the first two episodes because I think what Arya is saying is like. I have changed profoundly, right? Like that isn't her as in like, this is no longer... Yeah, no, you got to be, you got to be true to yourself. Right. And so Arya's going to Winterfell, sure, but I don't think that's abandoning her, I'm the you know most ruthless assassin in Westeros beat. I think that's just saying, holy cow, like my family is not as gone as I thought it yeah. was. Let me go check in with them and see who else I can go assassinate. So I, I think that who she was... Had you know she had been the daughter, then she became the disc. You know she's nobody. Right. She's just a girl, right? And that was the whole a girl point. with no name. A girl with no name. She always cheated on that. Always, you know, kept kept right. her equipment hidden out, right. uh, in, yeah. and then ultimately fled. Needle, needle, exactly. And I couldn't think of the name. I called it the equipment right. needle. Um, but now she's much more thoroughly reclaiming her identity and saying, "Yeah, no, I'm willing to run to Winterfell and try yep. to. I'm willing to have hope again." And meanwhile, now it's all set up for the big meeting between um, uh, nephew John and Aunt Daenerys. That, right? Next so week. I, I got to say, I'm not looking forward to that plotline. That that feels like the plot being driven, yep. you know, by the necessity to put the two, you know, the two lead characters into bed with each other. But also, where's Bran? Bran's the only person who knows what's going on. Why can't Bran send one of these faster than light ravens to go and tell everybody what's Indeed, up? Indeed, or appear in someone's dreams. You know, we've left out the best part of, of Arya's story, though. The beginning of what yes. I think of as the thawing. Of uh, Arya comes at the hands of none other than Ed Sheeran, oh, who right. sings a beautiful. I was not. Little... I was not going to bring up Ed Sheeran's cameo. Well, how could you not bring up Ed Sheeran's it's cameo? Such a, like, it's such a. It's and such the a lovable, crappy the lo- cop out. No, it's great. You got Ed Sheeran singing a beautiful song in the woods. It, it's like when it's like when Jack White in Cold Mountain gets to have his song as is actually very similar to that scene. Um, if, you, if you know what I'm talking about, which is about. exactly why it shouldn't have happened on Game oh, of Thrones. Oh, it's wonderful. No, and boo. then the best part is, it's not only do they have Ed Sheeran, but that whole that whole uh, the League of Lannister lovable Lannister lackeys they were they were also lovable you got the one guy who wants to go be with his dad yeah I really want I, I really wanted them to meet some very negative I was hoping they'd meet a, a, a negative fate I thought I thought the casting was really great they but, went out but, of their way to cast three guys with speaking parts Ed Sheeran and then two guys who at first glance you think right, eh. but they're like super sympathetic and they were so sympathetic which is exactly why if Game of Thrones really wanted to do its thing Ed Sheeran would have died a very bloody death shortly thereafter supports my theory that we're kind of past the Game of Thrones doing its and now and now phase. right and now we're into just appeasing the fans. Now we're into Hollywood phase. So this is what I'm worried about. You yep. know, we'll see. It yep. remains a, a lot still has to happen. It and could just be that they're just rebuilding our our, our faith in, in order to knock it. I, I kind of hope that they go <sighs> go that way. I hope so too. All right, so we'll see we'll see where we are with with episode three next week. Very good. Um, and before we go, right, follow Bobby at Bobby Chesney on Twitter. Follow me at Steve underscore Vladik. Follow NSL Podcast at NSL Podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes if you liked it or if you didn't. Tell us what else about Game of Thrones we should be discussing. <laughs> and any other advice, such as, as many people said, be shorter. We'll work on that. How do we um, do, Steve? As I, as I keep talking, uh, how did we do? Well, we're at 57 minutes and 50 seconds. All right, under an hour. Let's stop. <laughs> All right, so we'll talk to you guys next week. Adios. Bye.